Quantum computing, the next big thing or forever in the future? The answer lies in whether there's a practical way to make the crucial components for quantum computers. Now they require expensive, bulky, and energy-intensive supercooling, like to nearly absolute zero. Well, now a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency program seeks a breakthrough in quantum computing science so it can get at warmer temperatures. We get the particulars from DARPA program manager Mukund Vengalator. Dr. Vengalator, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And manufacturability, that's the essential issue, right, for building quantum computers, because what they do is fairly well understood. Would that be a fair way to characterize the situation? That would be a fair way. So I, I would use the word scalability rather than manufacturability. So the, 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 uh, what you said was absolutely right, that at the heart of quantum computers are what we call qubits. These are the quantum versions of classical bits, and we understand fairly well how they work. And there are many versions of such qubits, whether it be with superconducting devices, whether it be with cold atoms, with ions, or even with photons. In this program, we are looking particularly at what can be done to advance the state of the art in the particular context of superconducting qubits. And there, as you said, the huge challenge right now is scalability. How do we go from one or two qubits or even a few dozen qubits to the number of qubits that we actually need for quantum computers to become viable or practical. And qubits operate mechanically, correct? I mean, it's a very tiny thing that's either here or there, and therefore it has two states. Is that fundamentally what's going on? That's the key distinction between a classical bit, which can either be one of two states, up or down, or zero or one, and a quantum bit, which can be in a superposition of both zero and one at the same time. And so while that might not seem like a uh, dramatic distinction when you're just dealing with one bit or one qubit, the essence of being able to put these qubits in superpositions of many different states at the same time has the rather dramatic benefit as you scale up to the fact that there's an exponential growth of quantum resources or the available information processing capacity. So each additional qubit that you add to your processor doubles the processing power of your quantum computer. And that has always been the lure of why this would be a transformative new way of computation. Now, there are companies that have quantum computers, and they admit it. there's only a couple of dozen or maybe a couple of hundred qubits on them. It's almost like I remember there was a toy computer when I was a kid that was mechanical, and it had three places. You could have 001, 010, or 011 or something on it with sliding pieces of metal back and forth. Kind of that's where they are now. Are these then such as they are, also supercooled with all the resources that takes? In the context of superconducting qubits or the superconducting quantum computing uh, platforms, that is definitely true. They, they need, these need to be operated at temperatures on the order of tens of millikelvin. So that takes a huge amount of infrastructure in terms of how we actually have cool these superconducting qubits down they need dilution fridges, many layers of shielding, and these are extremely bulky devices. And so scaling up from, say, like you said, dozens of qubits to the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands of qubits that one would actually need to tackle the really hard problems is a uh, enormous challenge right now. We're speaking with Dr. Makund Vengalator. He is a program manager in the Defense Science Office at DARPA. So tell us about the project, the challenge, the grants that you have going here for, let's call it hot computing, hot quantum computing, fair to say. Hot meaning somewhere above absolute zero. 
That's right. That's a very important point or clarification that needs to be said when you say hot qubits or warm temperature superconductors, we're not talking about room temperature. We're talking about temperatures on the order of a few Kelvin. That's icy, icy cold in normal circumstances, but it's still warm compared to the current temperatures of such qubits, which are 10 to 20 millikelvin. But it's a quantum, pardon the pun, difference in scalability and ability to have something that's it's a, it's a huge difference. It will make a huge difference in how scalable these quantum processors can become if we can make the seemingly marginal increase from, say, tens of millikelvin to a few kelvin. All right. And how are you going about this from a program standpoint? Are you giving grants to institutions to try to develop the science or what's going on in the program itself? So at a fundamental level, the question we are asking, and that, that also gets to the heart of the name of the program, synthetic quantum nanostructures. So why synthetic and why nanostructures? And the question we are asking builds upon various insights, including those that have been developed in the past by DARPA. So if I say, what is a nanostructure or what is a metamaterial? These are materials that do not exist in nature. But we know, for instance, in a very classical context, for instance, if I were to say ultralight materials, and the picture one has in mind is of these meshes or these foams, foam-like structures, and these do not exist in nature, but these are artificially designed or functionally engineered for specific purposes. So in the context of ultralight materials, the questions one would ask is, I want a material that's extremely strong, and I also want a material that's extremely light. If one were to just go around and look in nature for such materials, one can either find strong materials, which are heavy, or light materials that are fragile. And so it takes kind of a uh, stroke of genius to say, I can indeed combine these seemingly contradictory attributes by functionally engineering synthetic structures. And similarly, we also know of materials, artificial materials or synthetic nanostructures that can modify the flow of sound that can reflect sound in some wavelengths and not in others. We can do the same thing with light, that we can modify the flow of light. We can cause some colors to be reflected, some colors to be transmitted. The question we are asking in this program is, can we engineer such functional quantum materials that can exhibit the kinds of properties that we need of superconducting electronics. And here I'm not just restricting attention of this program to quantum uh, or qubits or quantum processors. There are a huge variety of applications that we can uh, harness with such synthetic superconductors. And we're asking the question, can we take existing materials or, and functionally engineer them to combine seemingly contradictory properties, for instance, extremely robust quantum behavior and higher temperature operation. And if we can do that, not only do we enable a much larger range of scalability for quantum processors or superconducting qubits, we get to build sensors or quantum sensors that are far more sensitive to very weak levels of light. We can process signals at much higher speeds, not gigahertz, but hundreds of gigahertz or even terahertz and we can start processing these signals at quantum levels of sensitivity. So the aperture opens rather dramatically to what we can do with such superconducting devices once we can functionally engineer these materials. And how are you going about that discovery of whether these can be made? So we are building on some known insights, uh, recent insights in the physics community that have shown that the 
current state of nanofabrication and functional engineering is at such a high level of sophistication that we can actually envision being able to engineer materials at the nanoscale. In a certain sense, functionally build up materials from almost at an atom by atom level by combining different materials, different attributes, and harnessing our known knowledge of superconductivity, of knowing how superconductivity works at heart in a class of materials to say, can we push up the temperatures and the functional capabilities of materials or devices that harness or that require such uh, superconducting properties? Well, my question is, who are you asking? Is this going out to academic institutions, laboratories, and so forth in the form of grants, and they will try to compete for getting to that answer? That's exactly right. So this is at such a foundational level where we are saying, we're just posing the question, what if we could functionally engineer new kinds of superconductors? How would we do it? And what are all the applications that would be engendered by these innovations? And we're asking academia, we're asking government laboratories, and we're asking industry all to come together to, uh, to either work together or to pitch their ideas of how they would functionally engineer such superconductors. And the twist of uh, in this program that is very important to note is that we are not just asking these performers or these pro proposers to develop new materials. We're also asking them to incorporate these materials into actual devices, whether they be qubits, whether they be photon detectors, whether they be amplifiers, quantum amplifiers, and show us that your innovations and your functionally engineered materials do lead to dramatic improvements in these devices. I guess my question is given the DARPA context, because ultimately what you do is for defense superiority, how do you keep this knowledge, information, breakthrough out of the hands of, say, China? because they're probably chasing after it also. We are working at such a fundamental scientific level, especially at the Defense Sciences Office, that, of course, down the road, there are going to be application-specific work that needs to be done that would be of a much higher classification and much more sensitive. But right now, we are treating this very much like a fundamental academic question. What if we can actually pull this off? And... It's while there are obviously a number of applications that are defense oriented, we could also envision the same devices being employed towards, you know, uh, quantum computing for uh, applications like new kinds of materials discovery, new kinds of pharmaceutical discovery. We can envision these kinds of photon detectors being used for medical diagnosis. We can envision these kinds of devices being used for a wide range of applications that have both defense medical or even commercial applications. So at this point, we're saying, let's just plant some flags here in terms of foundational concepts. And once we know what is truly possible, we can then either go towards more sensitive applications or we can open the horizon for more commercial applications or applications in the context of medicine, uh, materials engineering, materials discovery. There's a huge, huge range of applications. So at this point, we don't see the need to close the apertures or build walls right when we are at such a beginning or a nascent stage. And will you know this in three months or 10 years or when you have any kind of a cogent timeline? Uh, there I would be speculating, but I'm reasonably confident that we will know at least what is possible and what would be truly disruptive or transformative within a few years. Well, yeah, so a long-term project then. Dr. Makund Vangalator is a program manager at the Defense Science Office at DARPA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, and thank you for your interest in this program.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay, Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know and I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, 
right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance of, 
more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.